Today we're going to be covering the sixth chapter in the book of Esther. And the plan today is to be doing something very, very powerful, something we've been doing throughout this study. And that is looking at the prophetic implications of this book. We are really going to see it on a powerful level uh, today. And uh, you're actually going to see Yeshua coming through the pages of uh, the book of Esther in a very, very intense way. Now, if you remember, going back to the last message, as we finished up chapter 5, we found out that Haman, he does something I hope none of you do. And that is, he invites his friends over for one purpose. And that is to basically tell them how great he is. Look at me here. Hello, guys, would you come over? Uh, I need you to come over because I have a great night planned. I'm going to tell you how great I am. I'm going to tell you of my riches. I'm going to tell you of the multitude of the children that I have. I'm going to tell you the fact that I have been raised up higher than all the princes in the kingdom. There's no one that sits in a seat higher than me except for the king himself. Truly, I am glorious. Truly, I have pomp. If that weren't enough, now we discover Esther invites Haman. And what's unusual about it is no one else in the entire kingdom is invited to come and dine with her and the king except for Haman. You know, you step back and you look at the scenario. Put, put yourself in the age that this is actually unfolding. Look at the historical context. And one thing I can tell you, if you were to look at Haman, you would be in awe. He would be awesome. Every accomplishment that could be accomplished, everything that a man could gain, he had it. He had the world by a string. The world was his oyster, so to speak. But despite all of this glory, despite this um, given prestige that has been bestowed upon him, Haman's miserable. How is this possible? How is it possible for a man that has essentially everything before him to suffer, in modern day terms, to suffer from such great depression? And the answer is one man. The man, Mordecai the Jew. Mordecai the Jew is causing Haman to be depressed, causing him to suffer depression. So in light of Haman's woes, his wife and his close friends... They offer him an antidepressant, if you will, in the form of some advice. And we find that advice in the last verse in chapter, uh, chapter 5, verse 14. And this is what we read. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows be made fifty cubits high, and in the morning suggest to the king that Mordecai be hanged on it. Then go merrily. Look at this. They're saying, we have your antidepressant. Swallow this advice. Go build a callows. Have Mordecai killed. Then go merrily. They're telling him, this will bring you joy. You're going to gain happiness if you do this. So go merrily with the king to the banquet. How does Haman respond to this advice? We find he swallows the antidepressant. And the thing pleased Haman. So he had a gallows made. Now, to really put this into context, to show you how this really vexed Haman, how much Mordecai bothered him, keep in mind, the edict had already gone out. An edict went out to what? To destroy all the Jews. 
Well, make no mistake, Mordecai the Jew is on that list. So, 12th month, 13th day, all the Jews were to be killed. Haman needs this done now. He is not even going to wait for Mordecai. He's not going to allow Mordecai to live to the 12th month. He can't handle it. He's sorrowful because of Mordecai. So he implements this. At which point it brings us to today's message. We break into chapter 6, verse 1. And this is what we read. That night the king could not sleep. So one was commanded to bring the book of the records of the Chronicles. Now I'm going to stop right here so that you understand what the king is calling for. When you read the Greek version of Esther, it actually says, bring the book of the daily records. That's all. This is what the king is asking for. In other words, he's asking for the things that have been done throughout the kingdom that are noteworthy, whether tragic or good. He's just asking for the daily records, those things which are noteworthy, those deeds that have been done in his kingdom. He wants to read about them, the ones that made, made, the, made the book that were, that were notable. And so here we find that he calls for the book of the records of the Chronicles, and then we read, and they were read before the king. Now, I got to tell you, this is only the first verse. There's a lot here that I want to address. Uh, there's a lot here on a very deep level. I want to take you to the very first sentence that is said here, that is spoken. That night, the king could not sleep. It begs the question, why could the king not sleep? What was it that was keeping the king awake? You'll notice here, at least in this passage, no definitive reason is given why the king is not sleeping. However, if we go to the Greek version of Esther, we are actually given a little more insight. And understand, this insight that we're given in the Greek version, it actually falls upon the supernatural. And you'll understand what I mean when we read this. The Greek version reads, That night the Lord took sleep from the king. See, it was the Lord who took the sleep. You know, this, thing, this, this puts things on a whole other level. It puts it on a supernatural level for us. This is a divine event. And let me take it a step further and show you just how divine uh, this passage, this event really is. The characteristic of the king not sleeping, the fact that this is recorded at this point in the story, this is something that holds some seriously deep spiritual connotation. Let me explain. One of the things we've established in this study is the fact that the life of King Ahasuerus or Ahasuerus, on many levels, it's, he serves as a typology of the God of Israel. On many levels, and we've looked at this several times. Well, when we look at what is said here in this passage, we do find, yet once again, aspects, characteristics that the king is displaying here, such as not sleeping, they are indicative of that of the God of Israel. Let me explain by going to Scripture. Psalm 121, verse 1. I will lift up my eyes to the hills. From whence comes my help? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. Isn't that interesting? The very same characteristic trait being displayed by King Ahasuerus in our story, it's the very same trait that is being displayed here in the passage regarding the Lord God of Israel. He doesn't slumber, he doesn't sleep. And wouldn't you know it, 
What is about to unfold in our story, the story of Esther, it is the very same context of what we read here in Psalm 121. Identical context. What is the context of Psalm 121? It is salvation. It is salvation. Isn't that interesting? Because that's exactly what is about to unfold, what is about to be revealed in our story. Let me take it a step further. If we go back to verse 1, you'll notice here that not only is King Ahasuerus not sleeping, but he's also reviewing the notable deeds that have been committed in his land. Now let me ask you something. Is the calling for the book of the records in any way a biblical, a spiritual concept? Is this something that we can find in Scripture preceding salvation? The answer to that question is absolutely. Let me put this together for you. We have a king who's not slumbering, he's not sleeping. The God of Israel is a God that doesn't sleep, he doesn't slumber. We have a king, King Ahasuerus, he calls for the records, right? The deeds of the land, he wants to know about them. We go to the Bible, we find the Lord God does the same. And this is evidence in Revelation 20, verse 12. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. This is the calling for the books. And they were judged by the things, the deeds that were written in the books. Isn't that fascinating? Because in our story in Esther, King Ahasuerus, he does the same thing. He calls for the records of the Chronicles. He wants to know the deeds that have been committed throughout the land. And we find in uh, Revelation that before people actually eternally receive salvation, before the wicked are judged and destroyed, what happens? The Lord calls for the book of the daily records. This is what he does the deeds that have been done. Let me build upon this further. In Daniel 7 verse 9, a very, very powerful and prophetic passage. I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow. The hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. Moving on to verse 10. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated. The books were opened. This is amazing. The father, the ancient of days is seated. He calls for the books. The court is seated. He wants to know the deeds that have been committed. Now this is where it really is going to blow your mind because now there's going to be another figure that is going to come to the surface that is going to be revealed after the calling for the deeds, the daily records. There's another man that is identified which is a direct parallel to the man Mordecai because in our story what you're going to find in Esther, the king's not slumbering, he's not sleeping, calls for the records, And then something happens in the story. There's a revelation of a man to the king. This is amazing. You cannot make this stuff up. Look at what happens in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 as we continue. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. 
Then to him was given, uh, verse 14, then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, the one which will not be destroyed. You put all of this into context. If you take the reality of what was said in Revelation, you take the reality of what is spoken here in Daniel, put it up on top of the book of Esther, on the passage we are talking about right now, it is a perfect fit. It's perfect. If you haven't picked up on this yet, the story of Esther, it's not just a story, a biblical story. It's not a history lesson. It is a prophetic template of how all of this is going to play out. Deeply prophetic Going back to verse 2. And it was found. So he, king's not sleeping, calls for the records, and now someone's revealed. And it was found, written, that Mordecai had told Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, the doorkeepers, who had sought to lay hands on king Ahasuerus, in verse 3. Then the king said, What honor and dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's servants who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. So the king, he calls for the book of records to know the deeds that have been committed throughout the land. What does he find? What grabs the king's attention? There's one thing that grabs his attention. The deeds of Mordecai. It's the one thing that grabs his attention. Mordecai was a man who proved himself worthy of honor. Who proved himself worthy of the recognition of the king. And when you consider this fact, you cannot help but to be drawn to the reality of our Lord Yeshua, how He is the one who is worthy of recognition before God. He's the one worthy of honor. I find this all fascinating just before we get to the part of the story where the Jewish people are saved, what is brought to light. Just before we get to the part of the story, the Jewish people are saved, what comes to light? The deeds of Mordecai. You know, one thing that Scripture is clear on is that salvation only comes through the deeds of Yeshua. Through His deeds, salvation has come to the Jewish people. His, deed, his deeds were, they are, perfect in every way. A great example of this is found in Matthew 11. And when uh, John had heard in prison about the works of Mashiach, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? And Yeshua answered and said to them, Go tell John the things which you hear and see. Moving to verse 5. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. These are the beautiful deeds of the Messiah, Yeshua. Deeds that are noteworthy. Deeds that have grabbed the attention of the Father. Any question to this, all you need to do is jump ahead a few chapters and look at what we read in Matthew 17, verse 1. Now after six days, Yeshua took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. Moving on to verse 3. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Then Peter answered and said to Yeshua, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moshe, and one for Eliyahu, verse 5. 
While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This is the Father's response to his Son, to his deeds. In him I am well pleased. Hear him. The Father takes notice of the deeds of his Son, that his deeds were good, and the Father simply loves him. He loves his deeds. He's proud of him. In the very same manner that we find Ahasuerus is loving is proud. He honors Mordecai. Very same reason for Mordecai's deeds. Now, upon the father recognizing Yeshua's deeds, I have to ask, what follows? He recognizes Yeshua's deeds. What follows in the story? It's real simple. Salvation for the Jewish people. Salvation follows. Well, isn't that interesting? Because that's exactly what we're going to see happen in this story as Ahasuerus identifies Mordecai's deeds, salvation is right behind. Continuing on in verse 4 in chapter 6. So the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to suggest that the king hang Mordecai on the gallows that he had prepared for him. Verse 5. The king's servant said to him, Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king asked him, What shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? What was his heart? What was King Ahasuerus' heart for Mordecai? He wants to honor. He delights to honor in him. Now Haman thought in his heart, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? I mean, I'm the man. I mean, you think of this guy. Is there a mirror around so I can look at myself and how beautiful I am? I mean, think about this mindset. He is so filled with pride, so filled with arrogance, so filled with his own glory. He actually believes the king couldn't possibly consider anyone else to honor other than me. Based upon Haman's own foolish assessment of himself, he goes on to answer the king on what should be done. And listen to what he says in verse 7. And Haman answered the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let a royal robe be brought which the king has worn, and a horse on which the king has ridden, which has a royal crest placed on its head. Verse 9. Then let this robe and horse be delivered to the hand of the one of the king's most notable princes, that he may array the man whom the king delights to honor. Then parade him on horseback. And so... He's asking you, you're going to put him on the horse. You're going to parade him on horseback through the city square and proclaim before him, thus it shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Verse 10, and pay close attention. Then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robe and the horse. I'm going to say it again. Take the robe and the horse, the robe and the horse, the robe and the horse. This is what he commands. As you have suggested, and do so for Mordecai the Jew, who sits within the king's gate. Leave nothing undone of all that you have spoken. There are two elements specifically mentioned in this passage. Elements you need to pay close attention to. That were bestowed. That were to be bestowed upon the one, the one whom the king delights to honor. And that is the robe and the horse. Over and over again, in verses 7, 8, 9, 10, 
These two items are the focal point of what is to be given. And the person whom the Lord delights to honor is actually to ride on the horse. Let me ask you a question. Is there anywhere in Scripture where we find these two elements being found in the Messiah, Yeshua? Revelation 19.11, this is what we read. Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. Very first thing. The gates of heaven are open. The king comes out in his glory. The glory of the Father. What do we read? It says a white horse. What is he doing? He who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war, and we're not done. We go on to verse 12. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The very things that Mordecai was given to to possess by King Ahasuerus are the very things that the king of the universe has given to our Lord Yeshua. The horse and the robe. Now contextually, this passage in Revelation, interestingly enough, this is where Yeshua puts the wicked to shame. He puts the adversary, the devil, to shame. Well, isn't that interesting? Because this is exactly what is about to take place in the story of Esther. This is the point where Haman is going to be brought low and the glory of Mordecai is going to be raised up. Moving on to verse 11. And Haman took the robe and the horse, arrayed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city square and proclaimed before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Haman was humiliated before Mordecai. The glory of Mordecai was brought high and Haman was brought low. Exactly how it's going to happen very, very soon with Yeshua and Hasatan. Satan is going to be brought low. And this is evidenced in a passage in Isaiah 14, worth reading. So I'm going to take you through it. Isaiah 14, verse 4. Take up this proverb against the king of Babylon. And this is just a, a metaphor, a typology of that of Hasatan. And say, how the oppressor has ceased, the golden city ceased, the Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of the rulers. Verse 6, he who struck the people in wrath with a continual stroke, he who ruled the nations in anger is persecuted and no one hinders. The whole earth is at rest and quiet. They break forth into singing. Keep in mind, do not forget Who was running the show under the king, the entire kingdom? It was Haman. And here we see what Satan is doing. He's been running all the kingdoms. Remember, go back to Matthew 4, go back to Luke 4. Who was given all the kingdoms of the earth? Hasatan. He was given to them by the king. Moving on to verse 8. Indeed, the cypress trees rejoice over you and the cedars of Lebanon, saying, since you were cut down, brought low. No woodsman has come up against us. Hell from beneath is excited about you to meet you at your coming. It stirs up the dead for you. All the chief ones of the earth, it has raised up from their thrones all the kings of the nations. Moving to verse 10. They all shall speak and say to you, Have you also become as weak as we? Have you become like us? Your pomp is brought down to Sheol. 
His arrogance, his pride, is brought down exactly what we see happening and unfolding in the story of Esther with Haman. His arrogance, his pomp, his glory is brought down to the grave. And the sound of your stringed instruments, the maggot is spread over, or, uh, spread under you and the worms cover you. Moving on to verse 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. What is described in this passage regarding Satan, Hasatan, is exactly what is happening to Haman in our story. His fall has begun. Now moving to verse 12, we continue. Afterward, Mordecai went back to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning, and with his head covered. Verse 13. When Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him, his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish descent, you will not prevail against him, but will surely fall before him. What a terrifying prophecy to hear if you're Haman. Zeresh and his wise men make a very interesting statement here. If Mordecai is Jewish, this is the identification, this is the symbol. If he is Jewish, you will not prevail. You will fall. When you think about Mordecai, being a typology of Yeshua, one of the things about Yeshua that is imperative to identify was the fact that he was Jewish. Something that the church has stripped out entirely. It's one of the most important things that you need to know about Yeshua. Why do I say that? Because he can't be the Messiah unless he's Jewish. Critical concept. He isn't the Messiah unless he's Jewish. Let me offer you some scriptural evidence to support this. Deuteronomy 18, verse 18. The Lord speaking to Moshe, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren. Not from among the French or the Germans or the Americans, which didn't exist in the day. Point being is from among your brethren. The one that was to rise, that was to be the prophet like unto Moses, he had to come from Israel, the stock of Israel. Let me take you to a very interesting discourse in the first century. It's found in the book of John, chapter 7, verse 40. Therefore, many from the crowd, when they heard uh, this saying, said, Truly, this is the prophet. They heard the words Yeshua. Yeshua was teaching. And they heard what he said. And they proclaimed, this is the prophet. And others said, this is the Mashiach. But some said, will the Mashiach come out of Galilee? Has not the scripture... Okay, scripture, it is written. This is a fact. The Jewish people can rely on scripture. It's authentic. It's true. It's divine of the Holy Spirit. Has not scripture said that the Mashiach comes from the seed of David? And from the town of Bethlehem, where David was? He had to be of the line of David. He had to be Jewish. For him to be truly be the Messiah of the Bible, he had to be Jewish. Isaiah, or Yeshayahu, chapter 7, verse 13. Then he said, Hear now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men? 
But will you weary, my God, also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. God with us. But who is this directed to? House of David. The house of Judah. The Messiah, the Mashiach, had to be Jewish. One more. I mean, we could do this all day. Jeremiah 23, verse 5. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David. Had to come through the line of David, the lineage of David. I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name by which he will be called Yahweh Sakenu, the Lord, our righteousness. There is no, absolutely no way of getting around it. For the Messiah to be the Messiah sent from the God of creation, the Messiah had to be of Jewish descent. So when Zeresh talks about Mordecai and the fact that if he is of Jewish descent, understand, there's a spiritual reality being revealed within the story regarding the salvation of the Jewish people in regard to the truth of Yeshua. Because when Yeshua came, he came exactly when the prophet said he would come. And he was born in the place that the prophet said he would be born. And he was of the lineage that the prophet said he would be of. In all aspects, it cannot be denied, Yeshua is the Messiah. And because he is the Messiah, he can't be conquered. Cannot. Satan cannot conquer him. He is the anointed one. And this is the very imagery that we see existing in the story of Esther. This is exactly what Zeresh is conveying to Haman. Mordecai cannot be destroyed. And the effect of that reality, the effect that he can't be destroyed, what does that mean for the Jewish people, for all of his people? It means salvation. That's what it means. And this is a concept, I'm going to tell you, this is a biblical concept that the Jewish people cannot, that Israel cannot be defeated, that is woven throughout the tapestry of Scripture. In Genesis 12, Now the Lord has said to Avram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. Verse 3. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It has been declared by God himself. It will not be revoked. You want to come up against the Jewish people? You want to come up against the nation of Israel? You are going to fall. Exactly how Haman is falling. Your end will be like his. But if you bless them, it is declared, it is a promise. You will be blessed. You know, a perfect example of how this plays out is in Numbers 23, where we find um, Balak, he calls for Balaam. And he begs Balaam, curse this people. Curse the Jewish people for me. Well, let me show you how this turns out. And Balaam, he took up his oracle and said, Balak, the king of Moab, has brought me from Aram, from the mountains of the east, Come, curse Yaakov for me, and come, denounce Israel. Moving to verse 8. How shall I curse whom God has not cursed? 
And how shall I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? For from the top of the rocks I see him, and from the hills I behold him. There, a people dwelling alone, not wrecking in itself among the nations. Verse 10. Who can count the dust of Yaakov or number one-fourth of Israel? Let me die the death of the righteous and let my end be like his. Then Balak said to Balaam, What have you done to me? I took you to curse my enemies and look, you have blessed them bountifully. Dropping down to verse 18. Then he took up his oracle and said, Rise up, Balak, and hear. Listen to me, son of Zippor. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? Behold, I've received a command to bless. He has blessed. I can't reverse it. Can't be done. The bottom line is, is that no one, that, that, that if anyone dares to come up, against the Jewish people, the people of Israel, you will not prevail. It is an impossibility. Victory has been given to the nation of Israel through one, the Messiah, Yeshua. This is the power of the Lord Yeshua. This is the blessing that comes upon His people. John 11.48 gives us a beautiful picture of this. If we let him alone like this, this is the people they're gathering talking about Yeshua and his teachings and his healings. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. And one of them, Caiaphas, being a high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. Now this is he. Now this he did not say of his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Yeshua would die for the nation. He would bring salvation to the Jewish people. It is through him. And this is why we read prophecies like Isaiah fifty four seventeen: No weapon formed against you shall prosper. And every tongue which rises against you in judgment, you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. Their righteousness is from me, saith the Lord. Their righteousness is from the God of Israel. Now, let me put this into context. All you need to do is jump ahead a couple chapters, and guess what? The Father actually calls His righteousness the Mashiach. The salvation, his salvation was about to come. His righteousness is to be revealed. Paul picks up on this fact in Romans 3. He says, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law and the prophets has been revealed. He's referring to Yeshua. This is the heritage of the Jewish people. This is salvation. It comes through one, the Messiah, Yeshua. And this is why they can't be destroyed. It's because of his deeds. It's because of his work that he accomplished, literally dying for us on the cross. It's this beautiful work. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. People terrified. Make no mistake, when people are confronted with with death, they fear. When they're told you have terminal cancer, fear sweeps over you. The reality of how fragile we really are, 
But if you have Yeshua, the Messiah, Yeshua, the fear is to be stripped away. He's conquered death, and he will raise you up in his authority, in his power, and in his righteousness. This is the hope of Israel. Amen? So when we read verses like 13, that says, If Mordecai before whom you have begun to fall is of Jewish descent, you will not prevail against him, but will surely fall before him. When we read this, pun intended, Yeshua begins to bleed through the passage. He's coming through the passage. He cannot help but identify that. It is just amazing. I want to take you back. We're almost going to close here. I want to take you back to Genesis and show you a promise. The promise of how all of this would unfold with Yeshua conquering Satan. It was declared from the beginning. And this is what we read in Genesis chapter 3, verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, You are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. Verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. That seed referring to the Messiah Yeshua explicitly. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is exactly what the writer of Hebrews was talking about. In chapter 2, Yeshua crushed Satan under his feet. But he was bruised in the, in, in the process of it, giving his life. We move to verse 14. While they were still talking with them, the king's eunuchs came and hastened to bring Haman to the banquet which Esther had prepared.